0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. ETW approved. Void We're prohibited by law. See terms and
2: conditions 18. Plus. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in Eastern European Studies, and I'm your host, Jill Massino. Today, I'll be speaking with Bojana Videkanic about her new book, Non Aligned Modernism Socialist Postcolonial Aesthetics in Yugoslavia, 1945 to 1985 which was published with McGill-Queens University Press in 2019. Welcome, Boyana.
3: Thank you so much, Joel. Thank you so much uh, for having me in this uh, show, and I'm really excited to talk about this material with you.
1: Well, I'm also excited to talk about your book with you. So just a little background on Dr. Videkanich before we begin. Uh, she is an Associate Professor of Contemporary Art and Visual Culture in the Department of Fine Arts at the University of Waterloo in Canada. Her research focuses on 20th century socialist art in Yugoslavia and its contributions to the rise of global modernisms, socialist art, and anti-imperialist cultural work in the 20th century. Born in Bosnia-Herzegovina, she is also a performance artist whose art practice mines personal experiences of displacement, movement, and identity as these intersect with larger political, social, and cultural questions. So, Boyana, can you tell us how you came to write this book?
3: Well, this is a it was a longer project uh, that spanned part of uh, the research that I've done for my PhD um, or doctoral work. And as I was doing some research on certain chapters of uh, my PhD thesis, I have come across uh, some of these connections between Yugoslavia and Ethiopia and other parts of the world. In fact, one of my colleagues in my PhD department um, is an Ethiopian scholar who uh, knew some of the people who I was researching for for the thesis. So we had this conversation and we were talking about the non-aligned. And so this kind of grew out of these conversations and some of the research and became the PhD thesis, which was also called non-aligned modernism. But um, unlike the thesis, the book really dealt with uh, non-alignment on a deeper level and with much more archival research, which I was able to do after finishing my PhD. So um, it really grew out of ideas and thinking from this time of, let's say, 2009, 2010 and onwards. So Uh, It developed through my research into Yugoslav modernism and trying to deal with the kinds of idiosyncratic ways in which Yugoslav modernism existed um, and finding the kind of uh, words and theoretical and historical or historiographical ways to to define it.
1: Yeah, I mean, what's really fascinating is that the Yugoslav case obviously is unique in the context of Eastern Europe because it's a non-aligned country and that's the focus of your book. But just these connections uh, between the two countries in terms of their histories as well. And I'm going to get to the question about this experience of being a a colonial and post-colonial state. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to begin with having you define the term non-aligned modernism. Mm -hmm. So how does it differ from modernism in the West? And Mm -hmm. in what ways is it more than just an art movement?
3: Mm-hmm. So um the term non-aligned modernism really comes from my reading of colleagues across the world who have been attempting to in a similar way define uh particular modernist context in their own situation. So um, you know, in, in um Africa, in Latin America, and um one of the things that came up in my own reading of modernism in this way and reading other people's work on the same topic was this wrestling, if you will, with the meaning of modernism in the social-political context of their own countries. Um, And what became very clear was that Um, It shifted and changed, meaning modernism as an aesthetic, artistic, uh, cultural movement uh, shifted and changed across the world, depending on the um, situation of each country. For Yugoslavia, of course, it was the building of socialism, uh, of their own brand of, Yugoslav own brand of socialism, uh, which was self-managed, but it was also... Um, coming out of very difficult uh, early 20th century period that was marked by World War II and a very bloody conflict and liberation of the country during World War II, but also prior to that, to the kind of leftist and Marxist culture and art of pre-war or interwar period. Um, So the way that I decided to frame this this term, non-aligned modernism, was by linking it to these larger political uh, questions which have shaped artists' view of the world. Um, so in 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 a way, or in essence, artists were never only artists, uh, especially those who came through the war, World War II. Um, they were always political figures as well, and politics and art were always closely tied together. Um, and so not alone modernism is both, an artistic and cultural or aesthetic term that defines the kind of idiosyncratic ways in which Yugoslavia approached or Yugoslav artists, cultural workers approached their understanding of what is modernity, uh, what is art within this uh, larger question of modernity, especially after World War II. um, And also within the context of building a socialist state um, and how art can contribute to building of socialist state. That was of course, political question in every of uh, of its aspects um, so I decided to then frame it as a uh, political aesthetic term um, that is open-ended um, that is related to the infrastructure of art meaning art institutions understanding of arts role in society uh, building of you know cultural ministries building of international cultural ties and things like that together with, um sort of questioning aesthetic things or aesthetic ideas in terms of what does art form look like in a socialist state? How does art form, a painting or a sculpture, address the new reality of everyday life in a social in, in a socialist state? So um, you know, there were debates within Yugoslav art in terms of, is it socialist realism? Is it realism? Is it expressive realism? Is it modernism and abstraction? Um, and these were quite heated debates within Yugoslav art uh, art world, and they continued throughout the existence of Yugoslavia. Um, and non-aligned modernism attempts to kind of include these debates as part and parcel of how modernism developed there. So even some disparate things like um, a very realistic work by someone like Anton Cic, who was, uh whose work, sculpture is on the front of my book, uh, or the work of naive artists like Franja Mraz, um, together with um, some more Abstract works by uh, Petar Lubarda or other artists who became more known um, in the West, um, especially those, for example, who were with New Tendencies movement. That was are, are basically a movement of art and technology. So. In a way, non-aligned modernism attempts to kind of theoretically and historiographically include these as part and parcel of the political structure and a cultural infrastructure that supported these uh, forms of art and 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 in a way um, frame them as all part and parcel of modern of what is modernism. The the other question that you had, which is how does it differ from the modernism in the West? Well, it differs in this uh, a kind of a essential form, which is that it existed within a socialist state. Um, so the question of art in socialist state had to do with the politics of art. Whereas in modernism, especially after World War II, what we see is kind of its departure from the politics, um, you know, in its kind of quintessential forms, like in uh, abstract expressionism, for example. And Nancy Yahitz's in her uh, excellent series of books uh, on Western modernism, on abstract expressionism, really deals with some of these questions um, and delves into this politics or non-politics of abstract expressionism. So in a way, artists were, even those who were Marxist during, you know, 1930s and even during war, removed themselves from politics and removed themselves from from the state. Whereas in Yugoslav uh, art world, many of the artists actually participated in building of the state itself. So for example, Franjo Mraz, who was, uh, who I mentioned just, uh, a, a moment ago, he was working in, in the immediate, um, post-World War II period in the ministry of culture in Croatia. Um, others were building galleries, were building art schools. Um, some of them like writers, uh, and, um, and uh, cultural workers such as Korcha Popovich were not only generals in the army during World War II, but were actually uh, a part of the uh, highest uh, state building. So this is the difference, right? The um, immediate and very lively implication and work of artists within state building. Um, the closest... Connection that I could find between you know Yugoslavia and other parts of the world is with the work of, um, for example, Leopold Senghor in Senegal, who was a pre or interwar poet, uh, the creator of Negritude movement, but then he became the president of Senegal. Um, So we see similarities in this way in which artists uh, weren't shy from going into politics, but were actually readily doing it because they believe in the idea that this new politics of socialism represented.
1: Yeah. and I mean, given the context, obviously uh, in post-war Europe, but especially in these uh, recently independent States, it's obvious that the state has to play a large role, right? Politics has to play a role in how artists portray their cultures, their societies, their pasts. And so you have a really interesting discussion about how, the state, it, it's completely acceptable and necessary for politics to be a part of these artistic movements because of the nascent statehood that many of these societies were, were experiencing. And kind of related to that, I wanted to talk about the introduction because your introduction starts with Yakutat 12, Monument to Victims of Fascism, which was erected in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia in 1955, and it was funded by the Yugoslav state. So, what I find particularly fascinating here is that this art is also looking back, right? So it's not just necessarily forward-looking art that's focusing on uh, building and consolidating these new states and representing uh, a future. It's also looking backward, looking at historical events, tragedies, atrocities. Um, In a way, this seems emblematic of the modernism you examine in this book. So could you talk a bit more about that?
3: Yes, absolutely. So the monument was designed by a famous um, Yugoslav artist, Anton Augustinčić, w- in collaboration with another um, sculptor who the two of them worked uh, quite often together, Franjo Krzysztof um, And they've completed a few public monuments uh, in collaboration. Um, so uh, what happened is that Emperor uh, Selassie came to Yugoslavia. Um, for a, a official state visit just before 1955, building of this monument and um, Tito took him around. Um, he met a lot of political and cultural leaders in Yugoslavia, and uh, one of the and, and this was a preamble, if you will, to uh, the Non-Aligned uh, Summits and non and forming formation of the Non-Aligned. Haile Selassie was a very important figure in this because he was one of the early. Um, sort of global South leaders who were ready to engage with Yugoslavia because Yugoslavia at this point was sort of uh, rejected by the Soviet Union and they were finding their own way between the East and the West. And so the rapprochement or the reproaching that they did or approach that they did to India was just about to happen as well. Um, So this was an important uh, state visit. And, And the thing was that Yugoslavs didn't know much about, the rest of the world, um, obviously, at the time, you know, connections and knowledge and you know all of these things weren't as fast as 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 uh, for us today, um, and this global new world that we live in today was just emerging in its nascent. Um, so, in their conversations, they found out, in fact, that they had a very that Yugoslavia and Ethiopia had a very similar history of being uh, or fighting Italian fascism because um, Ethiopians were uh, occupied by Italian fascists um, in the 1930s and fought against Italians, which is exactly what happened with Yugoslavia. And so they find out about each other in this way. And there's a kind of a, you know, a kind of a, as you say, a kind of a historical connection that emerges. Um, And Tito at the time decides that one of the things to kind of build on this relationship is to commemorate this, um, um, this history. This was also important in Yugoslavia because at this time in Yugoslavia, there's a lot of, um, monuments that are being built to commemorate uh, the uh, World War II fight uh, by part, Yugoslav partisans. Um, there's a lot of memorial sites that are being planned and built. So there is a, a kind of a historical memory that is being constructed within Yugoslavia, and this is in a way part of that uh attempt to historicize and understand what happened um so he's uh, he asked Tito asks uh Anton Augustincic to go and uh see if they can build this monument as a gift of Yugoslav people to Ethiopia and um the emperor of course agreed right away um Krishnic and Agusinich were sent to Ethiopia they lived there for about 2 or 3 uh months um, and they came up with uh, this particular design and design is very very curious so for those who um, who might see the, the book or who might see the uh, images online and you can if you look for Yekatit 12 monument you, you can find it. Um, it's basically an obelisk uh, around which the um the sculptors have created a kind of a, a very deep relief sculpture in two kind of um, uh, in two levels which describes the events of Ethiopian occupation by fascist Italian forces and their fight against the Italians but also Ita- Italian brutalities so there's there's some scenes that are quite uh, Brutal—the scenes of hanging, die, children dying, and things like that—and on top of the monument is the Lion of Judah, which, of course, is the uh, a kind of a, a symbol of Ethiopia itself. But what's really interesting is that you have this very kind of geometric, uh, very vertical obelisk, uh, then kind of has these sculptures around it. So. Why obelisk? Well, one of the things that Italians did when they occupied, when they invaded Ethiopia is that they stole a famous obelisk that was in uh, Ethiopia. They took it to Rome and put it in front of the Ministry of um, what was it called? Uh, Italian Ministry of Africa or something like that, or Colonial Africa. Um, and this, um, and it was a kind of a spoil of the of the kind of colonial uh, exploitation, basically. Um, and in Ethiopian consciousness, the obelisk was the sign or a symbol of this colonial um, history and their fight against it. And so. Um, Krishenich and Alquistinch decide to place that as the central um, organizing, um, visually organizing element, in order to create this kind of narrative around colonialism, imperialism, and Ethiopian role in it. And of course, there's a direct correlation aesthetically because the way that the sculptors decided to de- describe Ethiopian suffering and fight was very similar to what they were doing, of course, in similar sculptures in Yugoslavia. So there's a direct kind of physical, but also um, aesthetic connection.
1: And so the use of the obelisk is like a symbolic reclaiming of it, right? That's Returning right. it back in, in, a, in a way. And I was going to ask, was that the first effort to uh, establish a memorial in uh, the global south uh, by Yugoslavia? So was that their first um, aesthetic yes. effort? Yes.
3: Yeah, that was okay. the first one. And actually, Kršenic and Augustinich created two more um, sculptures in Ethiopia. One was dedicated to Ethiopian soldiers, uh, and one was um, representing Ras Makonnen, who was one of the uh, early um, Ethiopian emperors. Um, the one that was in um, commemorating the soldiers was destroyed in the Ethiopian revolution and the Makonnen one, I'm actually not sure what happened to it. I think it was also disassembled, um, but I'm not hundred percent sure. So, um, the, the one that is the victims of fascism still survives in Addis Ababa. It's still there. Um, it just looks very different than what I have in my book because of course the city itself grew around it. So, um, the landscape is a bit different.
1: Oh, so the way it's displayed is different.
3: Yes. Yes.
1: Okay, I'd like to actually return to an earlier period now, so to the immediate post-war period, um, Mm -hmm. and talk about chapter one, where you discuss the development of Yugoslav art from socialist realism to alternative aesthetic expressions. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about the nature of Yugoslav socialist realism, because it clearly deviated from Soviet socialist realism?
3: Yes. Um, So this was one of the things that actually I started thinking about early on in the 2000s, reading a lot of Yugoslav um, history, art historiography, and sort of uh, reading a lot of texts around what was socialist realism, and very often, um, not just in Yugoslavia but in other East European countries and in Soviet, um, Soviet in the context of the Soviet Union, there is a kind of a discussion of. Socialist realism in very, how should I say, very um, crude terms, meaning that socialist realism is often read as this uh, sort of authoritarian um, particular form of art that uh, existed in a block, if you will, across Eastern Europe. And from my and I started, of course, by studying Yugoslavia, and noticed that really, if we look at it deeply, Yugoslavia never really had this kind of uh, socialist surrealism as it was often uh, referred to especially in English-speaking um art historical kind of um narratives, but in fact, had a very varied, lively and quite modernist um take and understanding of socialist realism. And then through reading further, um, you know, reading some of the, like Christina Keir and others who have written um, more recently about even Soviet Union, uh, Soviet um, socialist realism, we see that in fact, what we think of socialist realism is a very varied uh, term and uh, quite a bit intermeshed with abstraction and modernism in general. So we can't really talk about it in those very firm and uh, closed off terms. And that's why I decided to write this, to start thinking about non-aligned modernism by thinking of its roots um, within this post-World War War II debate in um, Yugoslavia about what is the right way to approach aesthetically approach art in a new socialist state. So of course Yugoslavia had a very um, uh, idiosyncratic way of understanding this. Um, partially because people who were on the left, who were now part of the art mainstream, who were debating these things, were before the war or interwar period were you know um, subscribing to express German expressionism, surrealism. Um, so there was a lot of different movements coming in from European influences and European West uh, and Western modernism that existed in Yugoslavia. So all of these people were influenced by these many different movements. Um, and some were indeed very sort of strongly influenced by s- some of the Soviet uh discourse on socialist realism. So all of them debated. And what I've discovered in my work in archival material is that, in fact, this was never a very long period. Uh, We talk about maybe during World War II and up to 1949, 1950. And already we see the move towards, you know, or away from rather um, these kind of very um, strict, uh, realist forms, and we see how uh, those who were espousing more modernist abstract tendencies were now uh, more vocal. And uh, by ni- mid-1950s, um, social what, what could be considered Yugoslav socialist realism is really no longer the mainstream form of art. But again, one of the points that I make is that this period was very very important because the debates around art's role in society and revolution and building of the new socialist state were crucial to how artists will understand their work. Um, so these debates, as some some art historians um, in Yugoslavia and outside, were you know re- were, were rejecting these debates as being you know too political and very, very strict and, you know, disparaging them. I was very interested in them because all of these people were sincerely socialist. They were sincerely Marxist and they were committed to their art. Um, And what they were trying to do is to figure out ways in which to navigate their work vis-a-vis the demands of the politics. So I call this you know, hybrid socialist realism or very kind of loose socialist realism that was made up of variety of expressions. And um, right now I'm looking at this work again, and I'm discovering some, you know, some works that were you know, considered de- quote unquote deviant by uh, some of the socialist realist uh, work that was uh, or theory that was uh, at this time very uh, potent in Soviet Union. So, again, uh, my idea here was to think about socialist realism, modernism not as exclusive categories, but categories that interrelate and intermesh and are in dialogue with each other and are part and parcel of this larger question that is supra-cultural which is modernity and what is modernity and how do these um, debates and lines of thinking about art fit within the project of modernity itself
1: right and you demonstrate with the the pieces you show the paintings that there was a clear domestic inflection in Yugoslav's version of socialist realism, which is understandable, but it looks a lot different than the socialist realism you know I've seen in places like Poland as well. Mm-hmm. So there really is a distancing. And I was going to ask you about these debates, because part of these debates positioned Yugoslavia or depicted Yugoslavia as a post-colonial state. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit, about how... Yeah. Artists and um, art historians, art theorists talked about Yugoslavia as this kind of post-colonial state and how then that was going to affect how art and culture was produced and disseminated, etc.
3: Yeah, so one of the people who is central to, not central to the book, in fact, but especially central in the first chapter, but in other chapters as well, is Miroslav Kriljev, who was a... um, kind of a looming figure of Yugoslav modernism. He was a Croatian writer who was very active before or interwar period. Um, He has structured many of the theoretical and literary uh, debates. Um, He was a committed Marxist, both before World War II, during and after it. And he had quite a pull because of his stature. He had a, quite a pull both politically, but also aesthetically. Um, and so he's really the first one to, um, in 1950s, very clearly situate Yugoslavia's artistic production in the context of kind of imperial and colonial um, destruction or political uh, political realm. And this wasn't. Just something that he talked about in the 1950s. In fact, um, and this is my project right now. He has started writing about Yugoslavia in the context of colonial and imperial powers um, already after World War One, because he was in World War One, and when he uh, came out of the war, he became an, an anti-imperialist uh, basically. And already in 1919, 1920, he's writing um, about the colonial expansion of western europe into the yugoslav territories and writes about it in terms of destruction uh, of language and culture and economic destruction and so forth so of course he uh, he was one of the biggest um, names in this but all artists in fact were who were marxist were aware of these uh, of these histories, so uh, during World War II, there were several uh, gatherings of Yugoslav Croatian um, um, artists who were participating in World War II as partisans, and in these gatherings, they produced some texts um, and have produced, uh, you know, commentary on art's role in World War II in liberation. And they use the terminology that we would call today, you know, anti-imperialist, anti-colonial, because, for example, one uh, artist writes about uh, German occupation of Yugoslavia and says how Germans, when they came in to occupy, they, they, they came in as conquerors, as imperial conquerors. And so this language of anti-imperialism before World War II, during World War II and after was present. Um, but it was really Krleža who both in his literary work and in his theoretical work and political work frames it as such. Um, there were other people before uh, the war, who were uh, traveling to um, Europe to be educated there. So uh, Petr uh was one of those people who uh, was studying in France um, in the 1920s. And he um, meets Amy Césaire and Leopold Senghorn They become friends, in fact, in Paris. Um, and uh, Guberina brings... Cesare to Yugoslavia in the 1920s to his um, hometown uh, on the Dalmatian coast and Cesare starts writing um, about post-coloniality in the Caribbean in Yugoslavia and and makes these sort of uh, observations about the similarities of the histories. Um, And so there was a kind of an understanding um, well before World War II, well before the 50s, that there were connections. Um, And so, what I was trying to do is to set up these connections to prove that, in fact, or to argue that, in fact, Yugoslavia's um, approach to the global south, to Ethiopia, to India, to Egypt, was not without an already uh, kind of existing history that Yugoslavia itself had with Germany with Austro-Hungarian Empire, with the Ottoman Empire. And so there was already a common language or base from which they could speak to each other. The similar thing happened when, for example, Tito met um, Nasser, Egyptian President Nasser. There was already an immediate kind of connection between them. Um, And Nasser was younger than Tito, and he kind of looked up to Tito as a statesman. And so what this is really establishing is that um, the base... Of Yugoslav experience with the Austro-Hungarian Empire, with the Ottoman Empire, with the German influences and French and British imperial in- influences, both economically and politically and militarily, uh, were already uh, providing a kind of language from which to speak about these uh, ideas.
1: So that essentially, there's these legacies, these cultural legacies that affect then what's happening in the post-war period, but. I think it's really important that you illuminate these because we like to think of socialist Yugoslavia um, and entanglements with the global South as something that's clearly related to the creation of a Yugoslav socialist state, right? That, that doesn't exist before. Whereas I think it's really important you highlight these affinities um, mm-hmm. because it's clear that there are so many similarities. And so I found that a really compelling discussion about Yugoslavia seeing itself as, as this colonial state, right? Previously mm-hmm. colonial state. Um, okay, let's move on to chapter two, where you mm-hmm. examine how modernism eventually becomes a state sanctioned form of artistic expression in Yugoslavia. So, what is socialist modernism, and mm-hmm. what are some of the paradoxes associated with it? Because you do talk about some of those paradoxes.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, socialist modernism was something that uh, a lot of the, or a number of Yugoslav art historians have already discussed in the 60s and the 70s. Um, and I, um, and I use a lot of the work that Yesha the Negri, for example, or uh, Protic have done, Miodrag Protic, who have done all of these sort of early, uh, 20th century early, quote unquote, uh, earlier uh, 20th century theorizations of um, socialist modernism. And again, um, after this brief period of kind of attempting to wrestle, if you will, with socialist realism, um, there was a number of modernists uh, who then take over and start building a kind of a more open uh, and more kind of varied understanding of what art should be in Yugoslavia. And this, in the tra- in the second chapter, I really talk about second half of the 1950s um, and into the 60s. And so uh, with this opening in the 19... And, and again, this also has to do with Yugoslavia's ousting from the common form um, with the break with Stalin, uh, where Yugoslavs just at this point decide, okay, we can't be... We're rejected by the Eastern Bloc. We do not want to be capitalists. So we have to find this kind of in-between position. And they engage with both the Eastern Bloc and the Western Bloc while at the same time fighting against both blocs. And this is, of course, the the position of the non-alignment. And in art, that meant opening up to influences of Western modernist abstract work that was already existing in Yugoslavia. Because as I said earlier, uh, most of the artists who were on the Yugoslav art scene were educated in the West. Um, And this was not unusual in Yugoslavia and not unusual for other small countries on the, on the so-called peripheries of Western modernism. And um, recently I'm, I'm doing some research on uh, the work by, uh, in Nigeria uh, and in India. And many of the artists, when you, when you read their biographies, um, have had to go to be educated in the West because there just wasn't enough infrastructure, artistic infrastructure, to be educated in their own home countries. And similarly, this was happening with Yugoslavia. So, you know, modernism didn't go away after, you know, during the war and after, immediately after the war. It was always there, it was always present. Um, and now it just came to the surface because it became kind of the officially sanctioned, you know, Yugoslav state who started pouring money and, and, and started putting in sort of support for exhibitions of Yugoslav art that included modernist work, that um, supported artists going on residencies who were modernists and so forth. So uh, very quickly in the 50s, it opens up to all of this. And uh, so realist work with abstract work coexists, in other words. And this is where socialist modernism comes out as a, as a kind of a, a form. Um, it is political. Um, but it is also kind of open to all of these aesthetic debates that are going on in in the West around what is abstract art, uh, how does it exist formally? So these are formal questions. Um, so the the best example of these sort of socialist modernist works are of course the monuments, the large scale commemorative monuments that became so. In fashion, in the last maybe five to six years, and that were so wonderfully represented in the work by my uh, colleague and friend Vladimir Kulich, who has co-curated uh, that big show at the Museum of Modern Art, uh, that included, apart from great architecture, also included these monuments. So the monuments, when you look at them, they are abstract in nature, right? Because they're, they they would be very similar to some of the abstract tendencies, even minimalist tendencies that we see developing in the United States or rest of Europe. But at the same time, they carry very political messages that weren't part and parcel of the kind of work that was being produced in uh, the West. So the Western modernism was really moving away from politics and wasn't interested in politics, was interested in very kind of formalist language. Um, but Yugoslav artists are interested in formalist language, but adding all of this socialist political content. and that's really where this term um, socialist modernism comes from. On the other hand, the paradoxes of it is that it became sort of uh, seemingly apolitical and some art historians within Yugoslavia have have kind of called this socialist modernism kind of apolitical move uh, and kind of in a way problematic. I, I while recognizing some of the paradoxes with this, movement. I'm also interested, again, in this hybridity that co- and coexistence of all of these styles and ideas in Yugoslavia, which provides kind of richness to this modernism. Another thing is that in the 1950s, and I proved, or I try to argue this with um, analyzing Yugoslavia's entry into Venice Biennale, is the understanding of Yugoslav um, Yugoslav cultural workers, curators, um, you know, officials on the ministry level um, that Yugoslavia is a peripheral country; it has no standing in international art world, and that going, for example, and representing Yugoslavia in the Venice Biennale meant that we're not just representing art, but we're representing the country. We're trying to make uh, our are ourselves known to the world. And we know that we are always being perceived as less than. So there's a kind of, you know, there was an understanding that there is a a kind of a hegemony, if you will, of the Western world and culture that sees Yugoslavia as a kind of a little barbaric, undeveloped country on the Eastern uh, flank of, uh, of Europe. And so they, they were going into and throughout the existence of Yugoslavia, really, when Yugoslavia was exhibiting itself to or opening exhibits to the especially Western world, there was this understanding that we were always looked up, down upon and that we needed to kind of, um, the Yugoslavia needed to kind of represent itself in the best possible light. And so that's, um, so in the book, I call this a kind of um, playing uh, playing defense, if you will, right? So always trying to sort of understand how Yugoslavia was perceived culturally and trying to mitigate that by representing it in the best possible light with the strongest work um, and so forth. And that's one of the paradoxes, really. And where I see a shift is in the 1960s and 70s when Yugoslavia embraces the non-aligned and not just plays this defense, meaning, okay, we always have to represent ourselves, but also now starts critiquing hegemony of the West and starts employing certain uh, networks or building certain networks, cultural networks, to try to mitigate that hegemony. And so those are some of the things that,
0: That's shipstation.com with the code POD.
1: That's totally fascinating. I mean, uh, I'd like to actually get back to talking about the the Venice Biennale because, Mm -hmm. um, as you said, it it was a way in which Yugoslavia could showcase that the artists there, the cultural workers there were legitimate, right? That they were Mm -hmm. talented, that they were not just kind of imitating some socialist, realist, Soviet style. And then, of course... They continue to embrace right uh, the West in the sense that there's this MoMA, the mm-hmm. MoMA in Yugoslavia, exhibit yes. in 1956. So, but then of course, as you say, they uh, go beyond this. They critique it. They realize, well, it's not actually enough, and it's actually uh, problematic for us just to try to kind of fit into this Western mold. But let's go back to the the Biennale and um, also that uh, MoMA in Yugoslavia exhibit. Could you tell us a little bit about those two exhibits? What is Yugoslavia? Uh, What's the degree of their participation uh, in mm-hmm. Venice? So, And yeah. are other East European states exhibiting anything at this time there?
3: Yeah, I mean, Venice was the, and it still is, the preeminent kind of global biannual event. And so I, I believe, I forget which year Yugoslavia f- um, um, did not participate. This is immediately after the war, one of the years. And then right after um, they participate basically every year. So there was only twice that they didn't, do that. So right immediately after the war in the 1970s, I can't remember now the the exact years. So um, yes, other countries are also participating, um, Eastern European countries, uh, Soviet Union, Poland, this was, uh, again, preeminent event that everybody wanted to be part of. Um, Yugoslavs always had this attitude, as, as I said, that it's not just artistic; it's political, and it's not just Yugoslavs. Of course, everybody who participated in um, in the Venice saw it as a political sort of representation of the nation state. And again, I'm go- I'm going to go back to Nancy Yahetz, who has written excellent, excellent work on analysis of Venice. Uh, Biennale and its political dimensions. What was interesting about Yugoslavia is that there is this always uh, this kind of understanding. Okay, well we 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 are nobodies. Um, so there's a lot of um, debate. There's a lot of discussion. Okay, so how many visitors were there? How many people wrote about us? Um, and you know how 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 is the foreign so called quote unquote that's what they called it foreign press understanding us. Um, so there's, there's a lot of discussion around that, Uh, in terms of the uh, 1956, uh, exhibition, I chose it because it was such a huge event. Um, not to say that there weren't other modernist exhibitions and, you know, there was a lot of, uh, cultural events that were happening in the 1950s in Yugoslavia. Um, I mentioned some of them in the book, uh, you 1956 exhibition of the of moma collection wasn't the first exhibition of modernism in yugoslavia as i said there was others before but what was why this exhibition was so interesting because it was an uh, it was emblematic of the kind of political events that were happening uh, as well in yugoslavia at the same time which is the uh, approaching between united states and yugoslavia so at this time uh United States starts to engage Yugoslavia more openly because they were uh, they sort of dissociate themselves from the Soviet Union. They start to uh, give loans and support Yugoslavia more. And so they see Yugoslavia as a way to kind of engage some of the Eastern European, other Eastern European countries um, as a kind of a counterbalance, if you will, to the Soviet Union. So this is the sort of this is the political background. Um, Yugoslavia, of course, at this time, as well as it uh, uh, is in precarious, still in precarious situation between the East and the West. And it is courting, sort of courting politically, um, United States, but it's very, Careful, and um, I quote uh, an archival document that I found in the U.S. archives. Um, it was an anonymous report written by someone working for the Ministry of, of Culture and Education, who is analyzing all of the ways in which the United States uses its culture to basically as propaganda. And the 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 uh, this report that's very long. I think it's like twenty pages long. Uh, very clearly defines what is cultural propaganda that U- United States is doing in order to warn Yugoslavs to, you know, kind of always keep, keep, uh, keep an eye open. And that's exactly what we see in the preparations for the 1956 exhibit where uh, Marko Ristich, who was the head of the Yugoslav um, office, basically, that dealt with international c- cultural cooperation, he says, yes, we know. Uh, you know, we know who they are, but we need this. We need to show uh, this kind of work. And indeed, when exhi- exhibition wasn't supposed to be um, stopping in Yugoslavia, it was a very large traveling ex- exhibition. Um, it was supposed to end in Vienna. But at the last moment, U- U- U.S. Um, cultural attache from Belgrade is asking their superiors in the United States to extend the stay of the exhibit and to send it to Yugoslavia and sort of all happens ad hoc, basically, at the end of the ex- exhibition's cycle. And interestingly, what I found out is that Yugoslav. Uh, visitors that were coming to the exhibit in Yugoslavia were the highest of all European countries. So I don't, I can't, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was in the thousands. It was a very popular exhibition, um, which was also interesting. Um, And it says a lot about how Yugoslavia was negotiating this kind of in between politically and culturally position. And one of the things is that, um, you know, some of the criticisms of my book that I've encountered recently is that I somehow argue that, uh, you know, Yugoslavia only supported, you know, and so felt supported and was only on the side of, you know, the the, the global South. Yugoslavia was open to all influences. Um, Yugoslav modernism was open to Western influences, you um, You know, as much as it was open to other influences, and it allowed for coexistence of all of these quite sometimes opposing forces in modernist aesthetic and theoretical uh, discourses of the 20th century. And that's why that's where I find the richness of, of analyzing this history because it sort of allowed all of these to coexist. Um, and that's why I was very interested in studying Venice Biennale and this exhibition because they were the preeminent kind of examples of Western modernism and how they engaged and existed in Yugoslavia.
1: Yeah, and I find it really striking that the exhibit in Belgrade attracted so many visitors. Was this at all related to the fact where you have like, you know, students being bussed in and people coming in from all over, right? From each republic it being in part kind of a, a requirement that people attend this, mm-hmm. this exhibit or how much do we know about the, the people who visited the exhibit?
3: That, that's a little bit of a, uh, I have to say, I'm not sure, because I didn't find archival documentation around that um, at the time. Um, that's something to definitely um, analyze and, and discover, perhaps, if possible, if there are archival documents. But one thing that I would say, and this is a sort of an educated guess, if, if you will, um, that culture had a very, very important role in the state itself. So, state invested an enormous amount of money, enormous in terms of if we, you know, if we look at it from today's perspective, and how how much the states that exist in the region right now are investing in culture, and how much Yugoslavia as a state invested in culture, the the differences are astounding in terms of percentages. Um, so, there was a lot of emphasis on education of all people not just urban you know people living in the cities but everybody and so yes uh, probably there were schools school children visiting because that was something that was very important throughout Yugoslavia's existence and someone I I was born in Yugoslavia in socialism and I was part of those student trips to museums and galleries and memorial sites and whatnot. So there was a lot of emphasis on that. So yes, I think that's part of it. But there was also part of it was the fascination with the United States as well. And this is to say, you know, as much as there was fascination with you know, other countries like, uh, you know, when when Haile Selassie was there and from Ethiopia, there was a lot of fascination, of course, with the United States. And we cannot escape the influence that United States has had, not just in Yugoslavia, but in the rest of the Eastern Europe. So there was fascination with this new, you know, with this new art and wanting to see it. So partially, yes, it was the just investment in cultural development and education, but also fascination with, uh, with United States. And in the 1960s, what you have is this whole kind of range of, um, films and music that completely mimicked, uh, U S work. Um, Radina Vucetich, who is a Belgrade, uh, colleague, historian has written a great Book on sort of um, analyzing some of these moments where uh, you know there was like uh, pop and rock music that was uh, translations of American and Anglo songs into Yugoslav, um, and so there is definitely cultural fascination uh, with this, and that guided a lot of the um, a lot of the numbers as well. Well,
1: and I think it indicates that the Yugoslav state felt a degree of assuredness, right? They felt confident that the mission they were following was a legitimate one because Mm -hmm. they didn't feel the need to block other uh, forms of cultural expression, right, from the West, whereas other states would have done that, right, depicted it as imperialist, um, fascist, whatever, right, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, capitalist. And of course, as you said, if some of the uh modernist tendencies coming from the west was not so political then it wasn't seen as a threat right
3: yeah and then i mean this was a, this was an interesting one of the, if you if you will one of the paradoxes or, or dialectical contentions in yugoslavia is that at the same time that you know um american culture was um sort of freely engaged with in the 1960s especially i wouldn't say so much in the 1950s um, even though the show was in 1956, there was it was much more subdued than in the 1960s. Um, at the same time this was openly you know sort of produ- produced in Yugoslavia, the state was always very careful about, United States influence, right? So they were always aware about the hegemony of United States culture and Western culture. And so, th- and that's the coexistence. That's the kind of fascinating part of Yugoslavia that on the one hand, you know, the state was warning against, you know, American or Western imperialism, but at the same time, these influences were coexisting, right? In, in, in everyday life, in popular culture. Uh, right. And, um, for example, in 1961, when the, the first summit of the non-aligned happens in Belgrade in September, just before that, uh, Patrice Lumumba was assassinated and there were protest, like huge protests across Yugoslavia of students who were protesting his, uh, his murder, um, with sort of wearing signs saying, you know, death to imperialism, right? And like calling out all of the governments, different governments that they found were implicated. And so, again, these things coexisted, right? And that, that's what I find the fascination with this history um, is the richness of it, right? And the richness of the kind of all of these intermingling discourses.
1: Right, and certainly in other socialist states in the 1960s, you see criticism of the West, in particular the U.S. and its policies, interventions in Vietnam. Um, at the same time, you see these same people listening to Western music, enjoying the Beatles, and uh, enjoying uh, artistic movements that are emanating from the West. So, so just because you're enjoying American or Western culture doesn't mean you support their policies, I'd like to move on to chapter three now. Mm-hmm. And one of your aims in chapter three is to complicate two prevailing arguments regarding the non-aligned movement. So mm-hmm. and, and you're doing this through the lens of culture. So can you tell us, can you explain what these arguments are and how when you examine uh, non-aligned movement through the lens of culture, you can complicate these arguments.
3: Mm-hmm. So one of the arguments is more, um, a, sort of more directed towards the non-aligned as a structure, as an organization, which is to say that um, the critique is that the non-aligned were kind of uh, state level, um, not grassroots organization that um, attempted, performatively attempted to counter Imperialism, but was really unsuccessful in that. And this is not just a critique of Yugoslavia, but a critique of Non-Aligned. That basically there can be no uh, anti-imperialist project on the state level, and that uh, all of these summits and meetings and things that the Non-Aligned tried to do uh, resulted in kind of failure, uh, because they were state level, and uh, because there were countries that were not let's say, socialist in it, but were kind of diverse countries. Um, And the second argument is more geared towards Yugoslavia, and um, this one is more uh, persistent, if you will, Um, and that is that um, Yugoslavia was only performatively participating in the movement of the non-aligned, and that it really just did, that that it participated in the movement of the non-aligned only to kind of exalt and use this platform to uh, benefit itself. And in fact, there's some who argue that, you know, uh, Yugoslavia's participation in the non-line was extremely white-centered and in fact white supremacist um, and uh, extremely Eurocentric. And so... What I was trying to do, and what I'm still trying to do to, in my current research, is to a argue that we need to see the non-aligned in the context of the world, global world that it emerged from, which is that uh, in post World War II world, the newly independent uh, nations or newly independent peoples were forced to use the already existing hegemonic model, which was the model of the nation state. Uh, In other words, the world was already organized in such a way that it required all of the newly uh, decolonized countries to use the model in order to assert their own agency uh, in such a way. And this is not my argument, of course. This is an argument from many colleagues who are political scientists who are coming from and historians. Um, especially useful for my work was the work of Richard Drayton, who uh, works a lot on and analyzes Caribbean um, nations and Caribbean decolonizing uh, history. Um, and in his work, he really clearly uh, argues this point, where he says that, you know it was impossible. For decolonized peoples to come out of after you know after world uh, after World War II um, without creating a nation state, and that was just the fact of life. Just like um, it was impossible for the socialist states to extricate themselves from the already existing capitalist fully extricate themselves from the uh, already existing capitalist um, world economy. So. I would say that that was one answer to this. The second part of the answer is that, you know, within the realm of very treacherous politics of, of the time, all of these decolonized countries, newly created states were in, um, uh, in economic and uh, were economically devastated, most of them, because they were uh, a lot of them were f- hundreds of years under very uh, strict colonial rule where uh, imperial powers extracted resources and money and so forth out of them, and they had to rebuild their state. They had to rebuild culture. They had to rebuild everything from scratch. In other words, they had to compete with already well-developed uh, imperial powers that for hundreds of years had many, many opportunities to develop themselves, and they had to do it all at once by, you know, building their, um, developing their in- industry, cultural institutions, and so forth. So that's the other answer, and the only way that they could find a way was to uh, attempt these alternative networks. Um, when I look at, in the Chapter 3, when I look at actually what was accomplished they were a constantly over the, you know, 40, 40 years and into, into today, because non-aligned actually still exists today, they're continuously attempting to work through the kind of hegemony, political and otherwise economic and cultural hegemony of the imperial powers, right? They're trying to continuously, through the means that they can, uh, work through it. And another really great and inspirational work for me was the work by Vijay Prashad, who writes about this quite often, and he runs the Tricontinental Institute. Um, so the the second answer to, or the second issue of um, so-called, you know, Yugoslav um, white supremacist or Eurocentric approach to the Non-Aligned, um, as I tried to prove and argue in the chapter, when we examine material, uh, actual material things that were happening on the ground in terms of culture, we see that this accusation of, of, uh, kind of supremacy or Eurocentrism is not, uh, valid because Yugoslavia out of its budget, uh, has in many ways, um, supported, Uh, artists, supported exhibitions, supported initiatives, supported, uh, you know, supported like the NANAP, uh, the non-aligned news agency pool, for example, uh, has participated, has given money to the UN for different uh, cultural events and cultural infrastructure. So we cannot claim that Yugoslavia only performatively, you know, only sort of paid lip service to this movement of the non-aligned. But in fact, if we look at the ratio that Yugoslav budgets were giving up for the cultural development, we see that that just was not the case. Um, And so this accusation of Eurocentrism is another thing that I'm dealing right now, uh, where I have heard from people that you know, that, who tell me that, well, Yugoslavs were just basically Eurocentric. They, they, they imposed their Euro, Eurocentric vision of culture and art onto others, which again is not true because, as I said earlier in this interview, all countries that came out of colonial rule, so all of those countries were influenced one way or another by Western Eurocentric culture, arts, politics, and so forth because of the nature of colonial rule, is to impose economic, political, cultural uh, structure onto the countries that were, uh, that were colonized. Uh, so I mentioned also earlier that Yugoslav artists and cultural workers were educated uh, in interwar period, were educated in Europe, just like cultural workers and artists from other Colonized countries had to go to Europe to be educated, to be, in fact, sort of um, admitted uh, into the global international art world. So you couldn't even be admitted to this world without being educated in the West. And so, if you wanted to participate in the international art world, you had to play by its rules, which is what I call hegemony uh, of modernism of Western modernism. So Eurocentrism that some argue Yugoslavia was part of in terms of culture, was we can say that that Nigeria or India has the same issue because the artists had to negotiate exact same problems of participation in the international art world for the same reasons as, as Yugoslavia. And they were all influenced by European Western modernism. This was something that was across the world, again, because of its spread, And because of its uh, uh, hegemony Uh, in the 1970s, Yugoslavia and other members of the non-aligned were dealing with something what they call cultural imperialism. And so the establishing of the non-aligned news agency pool was the the material product of Yugoslavia's and non-aligned addressing of cultural imperialism that they started to talk about. Unfortunately, Yugoslavia ended in 1989, 1990, so these things couldn't be uh, continued. But it was on the way, it was very interesting, the ways in which Yugoslavia participated in this. So those are some of the things that I tried to address in that third chapter.
1: Yeah, I have actually a related question, especially to the topic of Eurocentrism. So it's kind of combining two questions I had. One of them is how Yugoslavia worked to Develop this non-aligned imagined community, right? This mm-hmm. imagined community of non-aligned individuals who appreciated this culture, right? Uh, both in Yugoslavia and, and in the global South. And then also the initiatives on the ground in Yugoslavia. So there are a number of cultural initiatives. So you have the, the Friendship Park and the Museum of African Art and Culture uh, in Belgrade, the Gallery of uh, Non-Aligned Countries in Podgorica, Montenegro, mm-hmm and then the village museum of the non-aligned which actually didn't really mm-hmm. happen right it was never created but it was an idea yes and i'm kind of thinking about this also in the context of uh, you know world's fairs and mm-hmm. you know how do you design these types of exhibits galleries how how do you craft these initiatives in a way that doesn't seem to other the people and mm-hmm. to, to, uh, uh, to assume a Eurocentric view when, of course, you are a European country?
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, this is, this is a very interesting question. And I think that that's what, um, throughout uh, all of these initiatives, there was uh, wrestling with that. Um, when, so, for example, I didn't write a lot. Other colleagues have written much more on the gallery of, the, uh, of African art or the museum, sorry, of African art in Belgrade. And that was established by, there there was no African art to speak of uh, in Yugoslavia in terms of, you know, the same way as in, let's say, in Britain, right, or other, or France, where these countries basically went and and pillaged the work, um, put it in their museum. So there was no such thing in Yugoslavia. So the Museum of African Art was established by people who traveled, who were basically Yugoslav Diplomats who traveled throughout Africa on their mi- diplomatic missions as part of the non aligned work. And they were gifted these objects. They were gifted sculptures, they were gifted artwork, all sorts of things. And they decided that the best way to sort of uh, respect this work is to uh, donate it to the state. And create the Museum of African Art, which is how this happened. Um, and it's very interesting how the discourse around the museum is being developed today and what kind of uh, sort of uh, story the museum is producing about itself today. The, muse- the gallery of um, Non Aligned, uh, the gallery uh, in Podgorica in Montenegro, was purposefully built in the 1980s and unfortunately it was built in the, the mid 1980s and it only existed for a few years before the whole country collapsed so unfortunately this space did not have enough room to grow and develop into what uh, what uh, you know the intent uh, of it was which is to have a space for continual exhibitions of non-aligned artists, uh, to educate the local population around what is non-alignment to support documentary films, film production, music, and all sorts of cultural, uh, work. And this is exactly what they've done. So the, the, the actual museum has produced some really interesting, um, work and th- and unfortunately I didn't have a chance to go and travel, to do archival work in this, uh, in the space, because now the museum doesn't exist as museum of non-aligned. It exists as museum of contemporary art. And so this archive is sort of within this different institution now. Um, Unfortunately, I was going to go and travel just before COVID. Um, Those were my plans. Then COVID hit. So I didn't end up doing that, but this is my plan in the next, um, in the next year or so. And so they, Try to do it through temporary exhibitions and through inviting of experts and people from all over the world. And then, of course, the, the what what when you're mentioning the world fairs, the idea for the uh, the museum and sort of the village, sort of what they called what uh, Tibor Seke called, who was the Uh, the author of this proposal for the village of the non-aligned, he was thinking exactly about these um, sort of world fairs when he was trying to reimagine what an exhibition of the non-aligned should look like. And so Tibor Sekel was a um, museum administrator He was uh, a leader in the Esperanto movement. I don't know how familiar people are with Esperanto, but Esperanto is basically a kind of an invented language that became throughout the 20th century became this cultural phenomenon that uh, sought to cross borders by using um, different languages, combine them into into one and sort of organize culture and so forth around it. So he was very involved with that. And later on in his life became the um, director of a gallery in uh, Subotica and also started thinking very deeply about museology. And so in the 70s, he wrote two particular um, kind of uh, proposals that were seeking to um, materially define in cu- within cultural work uh, what non-aligned meant for Yugoslavia. And so his proposal called for creating of a museum that it wasn't really a museum the way that we see it um, normally, but it, it, he called it museum without walls and museum without a, um, uh, objects because he as museology since the 1990s has been arguing um, that objects in museums are basically uh, completely devoid of meaning because they're separated from the space where they live, meaning in their use. Um, And this is especially the case with sort of uh, anthropological museums. And so he writes these proposals for countering this by creating museums in which people will live and, you know, show uh, visitors how these objects, how their culture is alive, how it exists in the present moment in the 1970s. So to um, kind of this completely... Uh, reject this idea of an object in a showcase, in a kind of a glass um, sort of cabinet, but to actually invite people who would spend some time in the space and show visitors what their culture is about. Um, And in this report, he writes about how you know, Yugoslavia is not an imperial power. It never uh, was part of this kind of colonial project and it never had these objects in the same way as the, you know, imperial uh, imperial countries had. And so it rejects this and wants to create a different understanding of culture. And he also writes about how this museum and uh, village of the non-aligned would actually educate the local population. He said this would be important for educating of our people, meaning Yugoslavs, but also he says we should use our situatedness close to the West as a way to educating the Westerners as well. So, you know, like the, the 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 fact that Yugoslavia was so close to on the peripheries of Western Europe, he said this was a good space for us to use that as a form of, you know, educating the West as well. And so that was uh, those were some of the examples. And to me, what was fascinating is to read this man who's writing in the late 60s and 70s uh, about critique of museology that only becomes really in English language at least. It becomes the critique that we all know today as the colonial museum as a kind of museum, a different kind of understanding of museum. And these practices are now much more. Uh, mainstream, but he was already thinking that in and understanding them in the context of uh, of the empire in the 1970s.
1: Well, because, right, you have the non-aligned movement. And so uh, Slavs right. can be self-reflective about their practices. And there's also not this idea that there's a hierarchy, that they're working alongside one another, right? So yes. um, you, you're outside of this imperialist frame. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a follow-up question about alternative curatorial practices, because that's one of the things you talk about in chapter four when you discuss mm-hmm. the Ljubljana mm-hmm. uh, Biennale. And you mentioned how they did not, the curators did not follow or adhere to standard curatorial practice. So mm-hmm. what was the aim of the exhibition and, and what was exhibited and how was this an alternative form of exhibiting uh, art and mm-hmm. objects?
3: So um, one of the things that was really important for the Biennale Biennale was that um, they were very pragmatic about how they organized each of the Biennales. And so uh, they, for example, uh, the organizing committee knew that they could pick and choose, you know, Western or invite Western artists, artists from other, some of the non-aligned countries, and they wouldn't be as problematic because they could choose the ones that they wanted to exhibit. They knew that when they're inviting people from the Eastern Bloc that this become or from China or from you know uh, uh, Soviet Union, that this becomes more problematic because the state had a lot of uh, say in who gets to be exhibited in these international, meaning state that they were inviting. So um, in those cases, the organizing committee would let the state decide, you know, who would be sent off to to the Biennale. In other words, they didn't have aesthetic say or curatorial say in what kind of work each of those states uh, that censored their artists more uh, would send the work to Ljubljana Biennale, and they let it be that way. And so in some cases, this produced a very varied quality, quote-unquote, quality of the work ex- exhibited that some of the critics were noting. So, especially some Yugoslav critics who criticized Ljubljana Biennale as being kind of a mishmash of everything, a kind of a stew, if you will, uh, that didn't conform to the rules of quality, and they complained about it. Um, Others, some of the critics from um, Western Europe, commended Ljubljana Biennale on being so inclusive right, that it really did include uh, artists from the Eastern Bloc, from the West, and from the rest of the world. Um, And so that kind of staying away or being kind of uh, sticking to this idea of representing the world uh, and leaving it to these countries to choose whoever they wanted, even though that work might not be the best, um, was what I call kind of, uh, as alternative approach to curating. Again, I've been recently criticized for my view, my positive view of Ljubljana, because you know some uh, colleagues have noted that some of the work from the global south or uh, other parts of the world were kind of placed in the uh, basement of the exhibiting space. But my counter, you know, my counter uh, um, argument to that is that when we look at and analyze Ljubljana Biennale from the beginning uh, in 1950s to the 1980s, what we see is an increase Uh, in the numbers of non-Western artists. And this increase was quite considerable. So by the mid-1970s, late 1970s, the number of non-Western artists, including people from Japan, from Asia, South Asia, uh, Eastern Europe, was numbering in like 70% plus. So that 70% of artists who were represented at the Ljubljana Biennale were actually non-Western artists. And so, yes, some European art, some, you know, art stars did did get a lot of prizes. They did get main sort of rooms for exhibiting. But that's not surprising, right? Because um, you've got to be, now, as I said, curators were pr- pragmatic. They knew that they had to, you know, appease the art stars. They had to play by the playbook of the international modernist uh, art. And so they had to sort of um, invite these people by giving them prizes, by giving them their space. But at the same time, they worked very hard on invite, making sure that everybody else is invited and every everybody else is, is represented. And so in the chapter, I mention particular artists who I was interested in just because uh, because of their work. Uh, so uh, someone like Manhunt Ala Helmi, who was an Egypt, very young Egyptian artist who was at the Biennale three times. She did won an award. Um, she was practically an unknown entity, both in Yugoslavia, but also in Egypt. Um, and she was invited and she was represented and it was, uh, you know, she was a woman in the 1960s who was representing her country, uh, which again, looking at from the context of the 1960s art world, that was, you know, gender uh, gendered quite heavily. It was patriarchal. It was important that voices of those people like Helmi were represented. And so I'm interested in uncovering these histories because of the ways in which this alternative curating was happening in, at the Biennale. And of course the curate the curating process itself, even though. Uh, histories of the Ljubljana Biennale are often written from the perspective that Khrushnik, uh, its founder, one of its founders, was the the kind of the Zoran Khrushnik, was the man who led it. In fact, that wasn't always the case. It wasn't the case because he had a whole team and he had a whole team of very young women curators, very strong women curators who worked with him and who haven't been written about, but they had a lot of say in how And who was chosen for these exhibitions. So I I, I was very interested in sort of looking at this organizing committee uh, made up of many people from across Yugoslavia and from Slovenia who were all participating in, uh, in putting together the show.
1: Well, and certainly the gendered and class makeup of the committee would have affected who was chosen. And I think it's fascinating that here in Yugoslavia, in this case, right, during this exhibit, Mm -hmm. this Egyptian artist, uh, woman artist you mentioned, has more exposure than she probably Mm -hmm. had in the West during that time. Mm -hmm. And that leads me to my follow-up question, which I touched upon earlier about creating this imagined community. So Mm -hmm. we're talking about art exhibitions, we're talking about art galleries, Mm -hmm. but to what degree would, uh, you know, just a typical Yugoslav citizen been familiar with these cultural figures, these artists uh, from the global south? Would school children have learned about them? Mm-hmm. You know, would they have been in magazines? How, how much part of the, like, everyday universe would they have been?
3: Quite a bit, actually. And, you know, I speak from my own experience um, growing up in socialism. Like, I knew about these people. I knew... I was laughing the other day with my partner and we were talking about Yasser Arafat. And I said, you know, my childhood throughout the 80s was framed within this looming figure of Yasser Arafat and Palestinian resistance um, because I was listening about it all the time. And so, uh, yes, th- this what I call the kind of visual and symbolic representation of the global South in everyday life was very, very present. From translating of literature, I just found my mom's and dad's this book um, of Indian poetry that was translated into Yugoslav, but it's written in Cyrillic. So you have the... Indian poetry translated into Yugoslav language and then written, printed in Cyrillic. And and my dad gave it to my mom when they were, uh, when they were dating. And I found it now after so many years. So, um, so translations, music, you know, streets were named after uh, dignitaries from the non-aligned revolutionaries that are coming from the global South, the schools, um, songs were sung, and even in pop, like there's a, in the 80s, there were pop songs that were referencing the non aligned movement. So, this living, everyday living with these n- narratives through newspaper articles, through um, magazines, through TV news and stories and exhibitions and cultural work were all present and Yugoslavs knew about it they were well educated around Yugoslavia standing within the non-aligned and our so-called friends and allies which is that that's how they were referred to in in popular press. Um, so I would say that apart from cultural work that on the highest level that I'm often referring to in the in in the book there was also this mainstream everyday life that was saturated by stories of the non-aligned by different um, you know during the Vietnam war if you read the newspapers in Yugoslavia there was always from the perspective, of course, of the Vietnamese, not the Americans. Um, when Patrice Lumumba died, there were news stories across Yugoslavia talking about his death. When uh, uh, Yasser Afrat was visiting, when you know different dignitaries were visiting, there were always very large stories on all media about this. So this was part of the everyday. And both my mom's and dad's generation, and my own have grown up with these, uh, with this kind of visuality, media and, and everyday life.
1: I love the story about your parents and (laughs) um, sharing that book. Well, then, so your generation, your parents' generation, this was just a very tangible, right? It was just a a part of the everyday life. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, you have the death of Tito in 1980. Mm -hmm. And then you have the collapse of Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. And so then what happens to non-aligned modernism after this? You know, what are the legacies of non-aligned modernism mm-hmm. um, after the collapse of Yugoslavia?
3: Well, uh, this is also something that I deal with at the very end of my book, which is to say that um, non-aligned modernism, as I argue in the beginning of the book, is not just about uh, aesthetics. Right. It was always about politics, but also most importantly, about infrastructure. And that infrastructure is the amount of money that the state invested into creating um, institutions, investing in artists and creating networks, investing in cultural networks across the world. And so this infrastructure, which was built over the 45, 50 years of Yugoslavia, was crucial to how uh, art in all parts of Yugoslavia, continued after its uh, end. Um, and so institutions that exist today in the region were actually built upon the base that Yugoslav socialism built. And that base, in part, in big part, was, was uh, established by and with the money that was meant for Yugoslavia's representation in the rest of the world. And so it's part of what I would call non-aligned modernist infrastructure. So that even today, after 30 years of so-called transition and move away from Yugoslavia, the cultural institutions are existing largely on the basis of these networks. Last 10 years have seen kind of return of many of the institutions to these former networks and in fact, uh, for example, the the Museum of Yugoslavia that exists in Belgrade today is uh, now reestablishing some of the networks with other countries with which Yugoslavia had relationships, cultural relationships with, in order to kind of reestablish the the meaning of the Non-Aligned. And so, I would say that. Uh, institutions, particular artists, and art organizations in Yugoslavia benefited from the non aligned, benefited from Yugoslavia's participation in the non aligned because that participation meant budgetary funding, meaning that culture was seen as important. Uh, critical, in fact, diplomatic way for Yugoslavia to represent itself and therefore benefited from the state investing in culture. And that's all the legacy of what I call non-aligned modernism. So in other words, non-aligned modernism transcends the aesthetic only, right? And I've been asked this question, how do you define non-aligned modernism? And a lot of people uh, want me to kind of say Uh, to define it in terms of the kind of standard aesthetic model, right? Like formal, kind of informal language of art history. I'm not interested in that because, yes, as I say, it was made up of all of these disparate, often opposing formal tendencies like abstraction and realism, and it, it included all of them. But what's really, really fascinating and important is this infrastructure that it created, right, the kind of investment in culture that existed, and that still benefits today, some of the or most of the cultural institutions that um, exist on on Yugoslav old models.
1: I find it amazing, because it's one of the, you know, positive things that that comes out of the Eastern Bloc, right, the legacy that you have of these networks. And Mm -hmm. hopefully, as you said, They'll continue to develop them, and that will be reflected in some of the exhibitions in places like Serbia, where the the Museum of Yugoslavia is, but also Mm -hmm. in other former republics. Okay, we have run out of time, Mm -hmm. and I could talk to you for, I feel like, another hour about this. It's (laughs) so fascinating, and there's just so much to discuss, and uh, your book is incredible, and I really enjoyed it. Um, Thank you. But I'd like to turn the question to now um, your current project. So, mm-hmm. what are you currently working on?
3: So, this uh, the the non-aligned modern modernism wasn't was really an attempt to put the record straight on Yugoslavia and its relationship to modernism in the pre uh, after World War II period, but some of the things that I've been start that I started thinking about while writing the book that didn't make it into the book were the longer trajectories of this. Um, and the ways in which political art, in particular, and engaged art, was interesting in this. And also art that doesn't belong to the mainstream discourse, which is the art of non-academically trained artists or art of the naive artists. So I started to now go back in the early 20th century history, especially in the interwar period, to look at examples of politically engaged art that is speaking to similar questions around imperialism, anti-imperialism, anti-capitalism, Marxism, but from that earlier twentieth 20th, twentieth uh, 20th century perspective, and also how that influenced post World War II and post-war art. Um, but I'm particularly interested in naive art, and naive art was sort of another. Huge, huge, huge element of Yugoslav art scene that we don't talk about enough, which is uh, it became uh, very popular. It was very well received and was actually one of the cultural exports of Yugoslavia, if you will, throughout the 20th century, um, late 20th century. Um, and so I'm looking at naive art and how it fits into this story about non-aligned modernism, about engaged art and relationship of, you know, mainstream art and its non sort of mainstream uh, elements and how the anti-imperialism actually is seen through all of these movements, all of these different kind of artistic works. So I'm looking at um, amateur art, Looking at the work of artists who were not, you know, uh, mainstream. One of the fascinating figures who I'm looking at is Franjo Mráz, who was coming up. It was actually friend. He was actually friends with Anton Agustinčić, whose work we've discussed earlier on. Um, but he, unlike Agustinčić, Ag- he was never trained officially as an artist. He was a naive artist, and he was a Marxist revolutionary before World War II. He fought in the war. Uh, briefly was in the Ministry of Culture in Croatia and then left all of that and just lived on uh, in a small house on the Adriatic coast in Croatia and made work and exhibited work as a naive artist, engaged artist throughout his life. And then he died in the 19, early 1980s. So I'm interested, like he's one of the figures who I'm looking at right now. And I'm also looking at the so-called Zemna or Earth Group. Uh, that existed uh, before World War II. There was a, uh, a group of artists who were academic artists and naive artists working together, and they were quite political, so I'm looking at their work as well.
1: Well, it sounds fascinating, and it will be a really wonderful companion to your book, mm-hmm. to have to Book, and it would be even better if we could have an exhibit of their art Yes, um, at, say, MoMA, like the modernist exhibit yes. I mean, of Yugoslav uh, architecture, so mm-hmm. maybe someday Well, I wish you the best of luck as you continue working on this project and look forward to reading what comes out of it. And I thank you again for taking the time to speak with me today.
3: Uh, It was my great pleasure, Jill. Thank you for this wonderful conversation and for the time that you took to actually read the book and engage with it in such a wonderful way. Thank you so much.
1: It was my pleasure. Thank you.